preacher's uh, conference uh, over at Old Eden Church. We gathered, and so much encouraging uh, words were given, and Brother Nathan uh, spoke on the subject of revival in a, a very wonderful and, and effective way, and uh, just enjoyed our time together and stirred my heart up about a subject near and dear to my heart. And what we want to study this morning is uh, primitive Christianity at its best. I'd like you to open your Bible with us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. If we would be able by divine fiat to travel back in time about 2,000 years to see how the early church, the primitive church, actually conducted itself. To be able to go back and sit in those congregations that were established in the first century under the direct influence of the apostles themselves. One of those churches would be Thessalonica. I'll never forget when Brother Herb Hatfield and I went to Bulgaria. Uh, Actually, we had two ministers' conferences there in Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria, and and, uh, another one up in uh, another area. The brethren uh, asked us to bring uh, the Gospel of John in track form as an evangelistic tool to give to the different people that we would meet along the way. And uh, they said they had a a colony of gypsies that were in the mountain area uh, up above Sophia and actually on the border of of, uh, Bulgaria and Greece. And they took us up into these high, high mountains, and uh, it was absolutely beautiful. And before we got to the place where the gypsies were, they says, okay, right now, give me your wallet, your watches, anything of value, and we're going to lock it in the trunk of the the vehicle. And I said, boy, that's strange. Why would you do that? He said, because we're in gypsy country. And he says, they can rob you without you even know it. And, uh, And so we did. And I took the, the we, we had hundreds of the Gospel of John tracts and, and our little satchel. And we went into the various villages and, and shared the Gospel with these poor people. It was a great experience. But the highlight of that experience was when they took us up into the top, the very top of this mountain, there's a ridge. And they said, this side is Greece and this side is Bulgaria and and I looked down and I saw this huge city of white buildings with red uh, tile roofs. And I said, What's, what, what, what city is that? And they said, Thessaloniki, Thessaloniki. I said, Thessaloniki? You mean Thessalonica? And they said, we're Greek speakers, it's Thessaloniki. And I saw from a bird's eye view the very city of Thessalonica 
in the Mediterranean. It, and it was absolutely beautiful. And it was something in my heart. When they said Thessaloniki, there's something here that said, oh, I'd like to go there. I'd like to just uh, share the gospel one time where the Apostle Paul himself actually walked and, and ministered. Many of us are nostalgic like that. We would like to go back in time to see primitive Christianity at its very best. We know from our study of the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul and Silas were blessed of God and Timotheus were blessed to go to Thessalonica and physically preach and minister the gospel. And... Uh, Acts chapter 17 tells us all about how he went there and after three short weeks, God raised up and planted a church. And uh, it caused so much turmoil in that community that they actually had to leave. You know, they had to escape, especially Paul. Paul was a, a, a man with a target on his back. And uh, they didn't want Paul there. So the Apostle Paul left Silas and Timothy there at Thessalonica and went on to Athens. And one of the very few recorded times that the Apostle Paul was by himself, it was in the city of Athens. But a short time later, Timothy and Silas brought word to the Apostle Paul that there were, uh, there were, there were several questions in the minds of the Christian community at Thessalonica that Paul himself needed to address. So while the Apostle Paul was at Athens, he wrote them this letter. And in this letter, we get a cameo view of what primitive Christianity at its best really looks like. And we're going to look at this first chapter and identify some of the key elements of what the Apostle Paul had in his mind that the church should be about. Now let's look at this chapter together this morning. And on the timeline, we can, we can identify this letter as being written between 49 and 50 A.D. So we're right in the very early part of the Apostle Paul's ministry and his burden for these Dear people that were gathered by God to be the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1 says, Paul and Silvanus, or, or Silas, that's his name, and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now underscore the word church. There's a lot of confusion today about what a biblical church is. In fact, in some primitive Baptist churches, we have lost sight of, of, of what the church is actually for in the world. It's, it's not a social club. It's not just something that we do on given holidays to claim uh, Christianity like Easter and uh, Christmas. The word church is ecclesia, and it literally means the called out assembly, the called out 
congregation, those that have been effectually called by the Spirit of God, quickened, regenerated, and given the enablement to believe the true claims of Christ upon their soul. These individuals are are called out into a living organism, a living community. Out of the 118 times you find the word church translated in the New Testament, 116 of those times he's referring to a local assembly. Two times I believe he's referring to the glorified or uh, the, the future, uh, the collective church at the end of the age. But most of the time when he uses the word church, he's identifying a local assembly that is autonomous in their conduct and deportment that is identified, that stands on its own. And here he is writing to this church and he's going to express elements that identify primitive Christianity at its very best. So these individuals are called out I want us to notice something uh, very necessary before we go into the uh, details of this chapter. I mentioned Acts chapter 17. I want to go back there for one point. My first point about identifying primitive Christianity at its best is that it is a scriptural church. Listen to what the Apostle Paul was emphasizing when he came to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 verse 2. And Paul as his manner was. This was not something unique to Thessalonica. Everywhere that the Apostle Paul went, this is what he focused upon. He went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. The very first thing about The New Testament church, the primitive church, is that it is a scriptural church. It is a a church that believes in the divine inspiration and preservation of the Word of God and that the doctrine and practice of this church coincides or corresponds to the scriptural record of God's holy Word. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Christ, this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, is the Messiah. Opening, opening unto them, making it plain, expository, expository preaching. Uh, uh, not, uh, not invisive, not... Uh, taking a a doctrine and then making or molding the scripture to fit the doctrine or the teaching, the didactic, the, the, the teaching. But it's taking the scripture on its own merit and expositing that meaning. There's a difference. We, we, we need expository preaching. I hope this morning that, that our, our exposition of first Thessalonians chapter one will be a benefit to you and that we can see where we uh, stack up 
concerning primitive Christianity. So he's opening and alleging. The word alleging means setting forth alongside of another. He's taking the scripture as the basis of all his doctrine, to put it plainly. So the first point that I want to make in this message this morning is when you see primitive Christianity at its best, it emphasizes scripture. It's a scriptural church. And he says this, going back to 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common introduction of the Apostle Paul in his letters, is it not? Because he always wants to remind us that the grace of God the Father is the reason there is a church. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He told the apostles, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now I believe that that teaches the reality that the church of Jesus Christ is going to be in the earth when he comes again. Now, is it going to be in this community? Is it going to be in this nation? Is it going to be in this place? Uh, I, I think a lot of that depends on our obedience to the word itself. But, but you need to be sure that when Jesus comes again, he's coming uh, to, to gather his church. He's going to have a church, a witness of assembled believers somewhere in this world when he comes again. We believe in the perpetuity of the church. And it's identifiable by these elements. First, it emphasizes Scripture. That the Scripture is our rule of faith and practice. That's where we appeal to our, uh, to our doctrine and to our practice. And more, I'll say more on that in a minute. But grace comes from God the Father, and because of God the Father's grace, He sent God the Son to give us peace. So He says grace and peace are always going to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. I love the way He always starts His letters. He's going to emphasize It's a scriptural church. And watch this. It's not just a scriptural church. It's a spiritual church. In verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. He's he's identifying uh, for us the spiritual nature of the church itself. We are spiritually united to Jesus Christ by faith. And we are spiritually united to one another in our faith in Christ. We we are united. We're a family. We're a body. We're a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's That's a powerful thing. That's why it's interesting in all of Paul's letters. Remember, he's got 14 letters. There are 59 one another's. There's 59, love one another, pray for one another, work with one another, encourage one another. It's a community of fellow believers that are spiritually united to Christ and one another. 
and we're going to give thanks. We're going to give thanks to God always for you all. That tells me he's from the south, you all. Making mention of you in our prayers. It's a praying people. It's a people that believe in prayer. That believe in a prayer hearing God. And a prayer answering God. Verse 3. I'm remembering without ceasing. Three things. I, I call this a trinity of grace. Three things. I'm remembering your, number one, your work of faith. Number two, your labor of love. Number three, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. It's amazing to me how often the Apostle Paul uses these graces, if you will, to describe the deportment of the New Testament church, of primitive Christianity at its very best. What does it mean, work of faith? What does it mean, labor of love? What does it mean, patience of hope? It's very clear to my mind, when we study the words themselves, we, we find that when he's talking about labor, he, he, it's from a Greek word that literally means uh, to uh, work or toil to the point of exhaustion. To the point of exhaustion. Brother Nathan can testify to this on several of our trips overseas, especially the first few days we experience total exhaustion because the time zone is so different when you're going overseas your 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 whole uh body is is changed uh, to a time zone that's 10 or 12 hours different than yours and and those first few days you know you're kind of numb because you're going through the motions and you're praying that god will give you the grace and the energy and and the, and the strength and and you you can't wait to get to that uh uh, that that small room in that hard bed and and uh, <clears throat> mosquito nets uh, to, to get to to have that opportunity to just lay down and then at the end of the day you lay down and you're wide open can't go to sleep because your body's saying hey it's time to get up but your brain is saying no I've been up a long time I believe that it's in those experiences that we, we know something about exhaustion. And that's what is conveyed by this word, this particular word that the Apostle Paul uses to talk about primitive Christianity at its very best. It's a people that are working. They're active. It's a faith that is active, isn't it? In fact, a faith that is, isn't active isn't faith at all. Did you know that? James chapter 2 explains that very vividly. He says, faith without works is what? It's dead. Why? Being alone. Now, James was not saying that we have faith in order to become children of God. What James and Paul are teaching us is that we have faith as an evidence that we are children of God. God gives His children faith. And faith is that conduit through which... God is able to communicate life to our soul, but also He communicates uh, truth to our mind. And He communicates energy to our bodies, to where we are actively engaged in serving 
the living Lord. So he begins with that. He says, uh, I'm remembering something about you. I'm remembering your work of faith. Notice something. Turn one page over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. Watch this trinity of grace as it is active in the community of believers at Thessalonica. He says in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. So we have here uh, the trinity of graces, faith, love, and hope. This is characteristic of the Apostle Paul's remembrance of the community of believers at Thessalonica. He says, I remember your work of faith, your ability to not only believe and trust in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to be energized by that love, to be energized by that faith, to be energized by that confidence, to do the work of the Lord, to do things that bring glory to the name of the Lord. Much could be said on that, of course. But I want you to notice what he's identifying here are elements of primitive Christianity at its very best. We cannot claim a heritage to primitive Christianity if we are not working by faith, if we are not laboring in love, if we are not waiting in hope. We cannot claim that connection. So the church that I'm talking about and the elements I'm talking about are, are the scriptures and then the spirituality of the church. And then here's this special uh, uh, giftedness that God gives to his church. In verse 4 he says, I know something about you. I know something about you. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Somebody says, oh, Brother Jeff, I cannot go, I cannot tell somebody that I'm a child of God or that I'm uh, uh, confident of my hope of going to heaven because that doesn't sound humble. <laughs> you know, that sounds proudful. That's, that sounds kind of haughty. So I'm going to go around and tell uh, folks, well, I think I might be or I hope I can be. But the Apostle Paul says, I know something about you. I know you're the elect of God. I know that you are beloved of God. When, when we're talking about election, somebody says, well, the Bible doesn't teach election except in reference to ancient Israel. Oh, you're wrong. We're in the New Testament and we're talking about the people of God in every age. We're talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as being chosen by God. It's a special community. You, you follow me? And in a prayer this morning, I heard somebody thank the Lord for choosing them. Did you know we need to be thankful that the Lord chose us? Not because of who we are or what we are, but in spite of what we are. He chose us by grace. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul underscored in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 when he said, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath uh, chosen us 
before the foundation of the world. We are the elect of God. Sometimes we don't act like it. Sometimes we don't think like it. Sometimes we don't work like it. But we ought to always be mindful of the fact that we have been chosen by God and that He chose us before we ever chose Him. And that He loved us before we ever loved Him. He says, I know this about you because of the fruit that I see in your lives. You are the elect of God, beloved, even before time began. In verse 5, how do you know that, Paul? How do you know? How are you certain? How are you assured of someone's election? It is because of their response to the gospel. For, he says in, in verse 5, are you with me? And because or for, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He says there is confirmation here. There's confirmation made full by hope. There's certainty revealed by love. There is a, 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 a continuance in the grace of God. He, there's much assurance that you're bearing fruit to the glory of God. Listen, brothers and sisters, somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I, I, I think that God has a lot of children out here that never bear fruit. And they never, you, you can't tell the difference between them and a child of the devil. I'm going to tell you that doctrine is of the devil. That is not true. That's not biblical. I'm telling you that when God's spirit is in the heart and the life of an individual, there's going to be fruit there. That now, now, there's different levels of fruit, just like on our fruit trees at home. You know, we have some green fruit, we have some buds, we have some green fruit, we have some nearly green fruit, we have some fruit that's just right, and the birds eat it up. You know what I'm talking about. Even the birds know when the fruit's ready to pick. Somehow they know it. You ever had a garden? Uh, which watermelons do the coyotes uh, pick up on and how do they know which one it is I've never figured that out which which one of those uh, tomatoes do those worms eat first somehow they know which one's right right well brothers and sisters I'm going to tell you something when the spirit of God comes into the heart of an individual the Bible says this plainly if any man be in Christ he is a new creature Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. You see, there's a change. The things that I once loved, I now hate. And the things that I once hated, that's what I love the most. There's a change. There's a difference. And that difference is in the fruit that is born in the life. Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. A good tree is going to bear forth good fruit. Uh, uh, an evil tree is going to bear, bear forth, uh, bring forth uh, evil fruit. That's just the way it is. The fruit doesn't make the tree. The fruit just declares or determines what the tree is. So the Apostle Paul is rejoicing, isn't he? he he's rejoicing that in this poor community of Thessalonica, God has raised up a witness of His grace and His mercy.
primitive Christianity at its very best. It's scriptural. It's spiritual. It's special. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I, I, can, I can love Jesus, but I just, I just have a real problem with the church. But I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you this on the authority of the Word of God. We need to love the church. If not for any reason, it would be good enough for me that Jesus loves the church. Even in our imperfections. Even in uh, sometimes our misunderstandings. Even in, in times when we're not as unified as we ought to be. Jesus still loves the church and he gave himself for it. Ephesians 5 verse 25. I'm just telling you the way it is. I, I, it reminds me of a story one time. I, I read about a man. Uh, I believe he was a Scot. He might have been an Ir Irishman. But, but he was uh, shipwrecked on an island, and, and he was there for several years before anybody ever found him. And, and one day there was a, 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 a merchant ship that uh, saw this fellow on the shore waving his, his arms like this, and, and they saw him and, and, and sent a boat after him. And as they drew near to the island, they noticed that there were three huts on that island. And uh, when they got to the island, they said to the man, uh, uh, Man, uh, uh, come on, you get, get your friends and, and we'll, we'll take you to the ship and take you home again. And he says, Oh, there's no boat here but me. And he says, uh, We noticed that there's three houses here. Why would there be three houses on this island if you're all by yourself? He says, well, this is me house over here. And this is my church over here. Well, if that's your house and that's your church, what about that third building over there? He says, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> you see, sometimes we can't even get along with ourselves. But true unity is a gift of the Spirit of God. When God's people are walking in the Spirit, they're walking in faith, they're walking in love, they're walking in hope, and they're able to look over the imperfections of one another and dwell together in unity. That's where true unity comes from. It's a special place. It's a scriptural place. It's a, it, it's a spiritual place, and it's special. It's special to God, and it ought to be special to each one of us. This is a gospel that brings much assurance to the child of grace. In verse 6, he says, You became followers, mimites, mimicking, copying. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. I believe that he's describing the sanctifying nature of suffering. These were Christians that were persecuted. They were oppressed. We read... Uh, Historically, where many Christians lost their houses, lost their businesses, lost their property. 
because they were kicked out of a community, because uh, they, they would not bow to a Roman deity. Therefore, they were ostracized by many of these, especially Roman Greco uh, cities, uh, because they made it illegal to be a Christian. So what are you going to do? You're going to have to leave. But, but brothers and sisters, suffering is always used by God for sanctifying, for, for purifying. I believe that that's uh, uh, where we're headed. I, I really believe that in our world today, we're seeing a lot of persecution against Christianity, and it's just really now starting good in our country. But brothers and sisters, that suffering is what God often uses to sanctify His people. It's like an anvil in the program of God upon which uh, hard metal is molded. Many of us have become hardened because of prosperity and because of uh, uh, the access that we have to so many comforts uh, in Christian America, uh, we become hardened to the things that God has designed for our sanctification. And so he's going to bring out that anvil of suffering and that, that hammer of affliction. And he's going to mold our lives into an image that looks more like Jesus than it does today. So the Apostle Paul is identifying that uh, primitive Christianity at its very best is a, are a people that are being sanctified. Not only through suffering, but also through knowledge and experience so that uh, we might bear the image of Christ. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 5.1 when he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, not only uh, and we uh, and 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 uh, we not only um, uh, I, I lost that for a minute, um, but that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about. Let me go get that. Huh, I'm sorry. Uh, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of of God. And not only so, but we rejoice in tribulation, knowing the tribulation work of patience, patience. Experience, experience, hope, and hope makes not a shame because of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, in God's time, not your time, in God's time, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, these are the truths that the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are always going to maintain. They're always going to rejoice in. They're always going to exalt the favor and the saving work and the efficacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. We this day rejoice in a, uh, in a sufficient Savior, a successful Savior. I'm like that one old farmer that said uh, he didn't understand everything about the book of Revelation, but he did understand this. He understand that in the end, Jesus wins. Now that's good theology. I'll take that. Sometimes the way things go in the world, you wonder if Jesus is winning. Sometimes 
when we look around and we see all of these troubles and all of this oppression and persecution and, and coming dangers, you know, it causes the, uh, some of us to wonder, oh, well, has God forsaken us or, or forgotten us? Is Jesus really going to get us through all of this? And the gospel church says, yes, he will. Yes, he has. Yes, he will. And yes, he will in the future. The Apostle Paul says, He that delivered me in the past is the same that delivers me today, yea, and will yet deliver. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Read it. He will yet deliver. All three dimensions of time, Jesus is going to win. Brothers and sisters, that's uh, uh, that'll put iron in your blood. So the church that I'm talking about at Thessalonica and the primitive church at its very best, is sanctified through its suffering. Not only is it sanctified through its suffering, in verse 8, he says, I love this, in verses 7 and 8, he says, So ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. We need to remember something about Thessalonica. Thessalonica was actually the capital city of Macedonia. You know, uh, sometimes we think Philippi was, uh, Philippi was, because that's where Paul was sent first. But Philippi was not the was not the capital of Macedonia. Uh, Thessalonica was, and Thessalonica, by the way, was named Thessalonica. It, it, the original name of it was uh, uh, Hot Springs, because there's hot springs there. Um, but uh, the uh, Greek general uh, Cassius changed the name of the city to Thessalonica after the sister of Alexander the Great. And by the way, I was talking about Bulgaria a moment ago. There's a lot of stories there I can tell you. Uh, but but they, uh, they were connected to Alexander the Great. And uh, Thessalonica was named after the sister of Alexander the Great. Now, now, there's no charge for this. this. This is absolutely free. Well, in this Greek culture, there, there were a lot of people that were confused about the purpose of the human race, just like there is today. And the Apostle Paul is bringing a gospel message to show us and define exactly what our purpose is. Our purpose is to bring glory to the name of God. And he enables us to do so by the Holy Spirit that he's given us. So here's this community, this scriptural community, this spiritual community, this special community, this sanctified community that's going to do something with it. What are they going to do in verse 8? He says, from you sounded out. It's a sounding out community. Brothers and sisters, can I submit to you that that's evangelism? That's spreading the word of God? They're sounding out. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, these are Greek uh, states, but also in every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. 
You see, this is a, a sounding out church. They are uh, glad to share the good news of the gospel of the Son of God. That all of those for whom He will, uh, came to uh, save upon the cross uh, will ultimately be with Him in eternal glory. That's a good news uh, gospel. I'll tell you what a bad news gospel is. A bad news gospel is what I heard on the radio on the way to church this morning. Uh, the fellow says, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, he said he's not trying to pick a fight, but he picked one and he didn't even know it. He says, oh, I'm not trying to pick a fight, but I just want you to know that it was on the heart of Jesus. This is what he said. It's on the heart of Jesus Christ to save every human being that would ever be born into the world if they would just let him do it. Click. It, all, it went off. I tell you, I can't stomach that kind of teaching because that's not the true gospel. Oh, friends, let me tell you something. The true gospel is a successful Savior. Everyone that was given Him in covenant before time began was saved by the precious blood that He shed upon the cross. And one day He's going to gather that family together without the loss of one. Oh, that's good news to me. There's so much bad news around. It's good news to come and hear the truth of God's word in his house. They're a sounding out congregation. My last point is here in verses 9 and 10. Watch this. Here's fruit. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in uh, we had unto you, and how ye turn to God from idols. Now stop right there. There's a change going on here. Uh, to me, this is emphasizing the work of faith. Because faith is what turns us from idols to serve the true and the living God. Not only have we been turned from idols to serve the true God. But we also, secondly, serve the living and true God. This, to me, is the labor of love that he's talking about earlier. It brings us to serve God and others, uh, like we find in Hebrews chapter 10. It, you, you know, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse, listen to this. In Hebrews 10, 25, he says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Why? Number one, you need your brethren. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to be encouraged by them, and I want to encourage them. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you what. It, 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 it's a cold and unfriendly world out there. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful that God has given us a place to come and, and strengthen and refresh and encourage uh, one another? Serving, serving, they're a serving church. We're talking about primitive Christianity at its best. They're a serving church. They're serving the living and the true God. And then verse 10, and by the way, in this letter, it's interesting to me, in this letter, all five chapters end with a reference to the second coming of Christ. Have you noticed that? Do you think it's important? 
for us to preach about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Oh, yes. All five chapters end with a reference to the second coming. And here is our hope. Here is our patience as we wait uh, 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 with hope. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Not only are they a serving church, but they're a second coming church. They have an eternal perspective. You know, many times we come and we express our desire for prayer. You know, we, we need prayer uh, in our youth. We need uh, prayer uh, in our marriages. We need prayer in our homes. We need prayer in our old age. We need prayer as we go through the, the various changes and seasons of life. All of us do. Isn't it wonderful when we can come to the house of the living God and hear our brothers and sisters praying for us? I'm telling you, there's strength in that. And isn't it wonderful to come to the house of God and be reminded that the best day is yet to come? Because there's a day coming when there's not going to be any more sickness. There's not going to be any more uh, of, the, of the struggles and the sufferings that we are so prone to in this wicked and broken world. And when that day comes, all of God's family is going to be gathered together in one place shouting hallelujah and praising God for His sovereign grace. I know there's a lot of good folks. There's a lot of God's children this morning that don't understand how salvation occurs. That is by free and sovereign and complete of grace of God. But one day, all of us are going to know the whole truth that sometimes we doubt here. Sometimes we misunderstand here. Sometimes we just confess we don't understand it. We don't understand the sovereignty of God and the will of man that He gives. We, uh, we confess that. We don't understand. We can't explain all of those things. But brothers and sisters, one day we're going to understand it. We sing a song, Brother Nathan, uh, in the sweet by and by. I believe we're going to understand it. There's a lot of people that don't believe in salvation by grace today. But one of these days, all of God's people will know and understand that salvation by grace is by grace. So what does primitive Christianity look like? Primitive Christianity, at its very best, is scriptural, spiritual, special, sanctifying, sounding out, serving in its second coming oriented. May God bless these truths to our heart. Thank you for your good attention.